0: This is not a political poem, but today I am thinking about guns and rape culture and men who can't think beyond the power of their pricks.
1: Hey y'all, that what you just heard in the intro was a sample of Crystal Wilkinson reading some of the poetry in her new book. Perfect Black, which we talked to her about in this episode. I'm very excited for y'all to hear it. It's a fantastic interview, in fact, one of my favorites. Uh but first, Big John, been a hell of a week. Uh I do have to share this one weird story with you and you're probably gonna roll your eyes at this, but I had a dream last night that you and I got arrested because we had three trash bags full of weed in your car. And I don't know where we were, I don't know if it was in West Virginia or wherever, but the only other detail I really remember from the dream is that the police officer, in the act of handcuffing us, looked at us and said, "Oh, by the way, I don't believe in the vaccine."
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, I, I look the the bags of pot thing doesn't make any sense, but the other probably does. Yeah, I would,
1: I'd say so for sure. For, and, and if it was in Virginia. Well, no, it wouldn't still be legal, because that's way too much. That's
2: way too, wanna... yeah, that's not, I don't think that's going to be legal anywhere. Yeah, they're not going
1: to, they're not going to let that slide. Anyway, I was, I wanted to ask you but a what question. What if you were throwing it
2: out? <laughs> like, what, I thought
1: it was lawn trimmings.
2: Like, look, I'm disposing of this the only way I know how, and that's taking it to the dump. Like, I've been socialized to believe that. So technically, I think we were doing them a favor.
1: Yeah, well, obviously, we are good Citizens of our community, and yep. that's that's how it's reflected in our dreams. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you in this kind of intro thing here was, I was having a discussion this past weekend with my wife Kristen and her brother, my brother in law Clay, about the meaning behind three words: okay, Bub, Bubba, and Bubby.
2: Oh, those all mean different stuff.
1: They do, right? Okay, so I want you to, because I I have my own opinions on it, I want to hear from you before I tell you mine what each one of them in in their connotation means. So Bub, Bubba, and Bubby. Now, they're all, in my opinion, used to address people,
2: but... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, So Bub is usually referred to as, like, a younger male or, like, somebody you're related to, like, a you know, your brother or maybe a cousin, even, like, Bub over there. Uh, I guess it could be a really close friend, too. Uh, Okay. What would the other two remind me?
1: Bubba and Bubby.
2: Bubby reminds me of a grandma. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Reminds me of, like, yeah, that reminds me of a grandma. And then Bubba, I think that could mean two things. Maybe you call your grandpa that, but also... Bubba has that, like, connotation of, like, um, like old Bubba over there, like a guy, like, maybe you're not fully aware of who they are, but maybe it's, like, a big burly dude. That's Bubba over there.
1: Okay. So this is interesting, and for those listening, you know, you and I grew up in the same town, but even, even with that, we have different usages for these terms. So, Bub, all right, I've mostly heard the term Bub used almost in a condescending way. Like really? someone who's like an alpha male or something, listen here, bub. trying. Well, well, not like listen here, bub, but like, oh, okay, bub. Okay, come on, let like, like uh, oh, that's that's cute, bub. Hmm. Like it's a it's a sort of like an older guy addressing a younger person or someone that they view <laughs> as
2: inferior to them. Is this like. A- Where we get into, like, a detailed conversation about you and your your dad's relationship or something. (laughs) Not me and my dad. No, my
1: dad never used the term bub. Bub. This is me and, like, people that I interacted with in, like, high school or something. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, So so then Bubba... Let me do Bubby first. Bubby... Now, this doesn't involve my dad. Bubby is, like, a younger version of Bubba. Like, a younger... He's got... Probably got a beer gut, but... And he's got like the fish hook on his mossy oak hat, but he's got farm boy strength hmm. and can probably turn over a hay bale or two if he tried really hard. And and he drives a, a dually uh, um, a truck with duallys on them, and the mud flaps are naked women silhouettes. That's what I think of when I think of Bubby.
2: Also, I know why. So like, it is funny that we're we're different, but like, so Bubby. I think maybe this is why it. I, I maybe had a bunch of Jewish friends growing up and I never even knew about it. But, like, that's like a uh, very uh, Jewish grandmother name. Oh, it is. Yeah. For sure.
1: I didn't know that. I I didn't know a single Jewish person growing up. I, I so don't,
2: I don't know. Maybe I just watched a lot of Adam Sandler movies and, like, because <laughs> he always well, talks about, like, how he always gets portrayed as, like, the Jewish guy. And, like, I'm sure he said that in his movies. Maybe that's what it was.
1: It might have been. I literally did not know a single Jewish person growing up in Parkersburg, West Virginia.
2: I didn't know many.
1: But you are right. Like, I have definitely heard that. I just didn't.
2: I didn't realize it, yeah.
1: No, I mean, no, it's fair. In our context, though, Bubby, at least for me, referred to that Bubba was sort of an older Bubby, and Bubba was kind of a, almost a term of endearment and respect that you bestowed upon an older man, typically, who would also have the beer gut and, you know, the truck with the duallys and everything, but he'd be kind of like the guy that would be sitting in a recliner with a maybe like a Miller Light, or, you know, honestly, it could be even a Miller High Life, if I'm being honest, and he would sit there and he'd be the kind of guy that would say, boy, I tell ya, and then rip into, like, some story from his youth.
2: I think... uh I think probably the reason why we have such different. I'm starting to think about this now. I I honestly think because I growing up, all I did was watch like pro wrestling, and like and people who were named Bubba and pro wrestling, they were like a lot of them were the heels. They were the bad guys, oh, right? So that might be interesting. that might be uh, why I associate that with a negative connotation. Is like you know, there's there were guys named Bubba who. Uh, you know, sometimes they were the good guys, but most of the time they were the bad guys. It's kind of fucked up. Right. So maybe that's why. But yeah, I could see both.
1: Besmirching the great name of Bubba.
2: I don't know anyone actually named Bubba.
1: I have met, legitimately, I've met people where their given name was... That's different. I've met, like, legitimately met people where their given name, their Christian name was Bubba. Wow. Two Bs. Three, really, if you count all of them.
2: Government name.
1: Goddamn right. Anyway, speaking of government names, we've got some announcements. We've got one person with a government name who's joined our Patreon. You want to wanna read it
2: off? Uh, yeah, their government name is Eric. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, if that is, We're just assuming that's your government name. We don't actually know. Uh, so it could be, uh, you know, something else. Maybe it's John. That'd be cool. But anyway, Eric, thank you so much for joining our Patreon. If you all are interested in joining Patreon, it's patreon.com slash appodlatcha. Tons of exclusives. We have Drunk Appalachian History every month. We're going to, we do Q&As. We talk on the Discord to our Patreon members all the time. All uh, the time. You know, we make sure that... uh that they get their money's worth. And I think it's going to even continue uh, now that we're, we're growing even more.
1: Yep, and we're also excited to announce that on our main podcast feed here in the near future, we're going to be doing a special series on the legendary abolitionist John Brown. It's going to be hilarious. It's going to be informative. You're going to love it, I guarantee it. John, you've got some other news about the award show.
2: Coming back will be the second annual Appalachian Award Show. And this, I promise... This is going to be such a bigger deal oh than it God. was the first year. Because to be honest, we talked about this too. The first year we didn't we didn't know if people would take us seriously. No, we really, didn't know. didn't really expect I mean, I, them know. to. Yeah, how do how do you ever know, right? But now that we know that people take this seriously, we're going to put we're going to take it up a new notch. I'm even looking, Chuck. I don't know if I have told you this, but I'm looking in to trying to find a ponderosa that's still open that will allow us to rent the back room live okay. stream straight from a ponderosa
1: i'm into it i'm I so mean, as long as we get food
2: oh shit, what's the point if we don't i mean i want chicken yeah. wings all night yeah so anyway um big stuff coming <laughs> big stuff coming from that we are going to do it a little earlier in the year because last year we did it in december and uh, I think this year we're going to aim sometime October, November areas. I think that's where we're, that's where we're looking. So uh, every week we pick a new review. It has to be written on uh, Apple. But, check. I think I'm going to extend this. I have an idea. Oh, boy. Uh, we'll pick, you know, we'll look at Apple. But if you send us a written review from any other platform that you can write a review on, if you send it to us and we can see it, Then you'll be eligible as well, and if you write two, cool, you're 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 more likely to win at that point. So just send them all, right? But uh, hell, you can write
1: an op ed in your local paper if you want.
2: Exact shit, oh, you automatically win if you do that. Uh, I I I I call it now. Anyway, this week's five star review off Apple Podcasts comes from uh, Luciano underscore two W one.
1: Favorite name. Favorite Christian name.
2: Yep. Uh, Appalachian enti- or Entitlement. Appalachian Enlightenment. <laughs> I, uh, it's, uh, that would take on a whole different meaning. That seems like a fucking oxymoron. Uh, Appalachian in- in- Enlightenment. Excellent podcast. I listen every week. Chuck. Thank you. Chuck and, B- and John tackle all subjects from politics to the hollers. As a retired military guy who lived away for 20 years... 14 years overseas. That's incredible. I have learned tons about Appalachia and the broader issues facing our communities from this podcast. Tune in. Well, thank you so much, Luciano underscore two W one. You are this week's winner. DM us and we will get that stuff out to you. The little, a little thank you uh, pack. And the other thing we're going to announce this week, we're going to start rolling this out. And this week, I think no better uh, way to do it than this one right here. No better. so we've decided to partner up with different businesses and creators and things like that for a weekly giveaway for our fans because we want, you know, we want you all to essentially get, get some free shit, you know, uh, who doesn't. So the way this will work this week is, uh, we will post a tweet this Tuesday and it's going to be pinned to the top, and it'll tell you what's the giveaway, which this week will be an audiobook version of Mike Mallow's book, In the Country Dark. We're going to give that away. All you have to do is Appalachian, you have to read-
1: Appalachian Award Book of the Year, by the way.
2: That is true. Very good point. All you have to do is retweet that tweet and make sure you're following us on Twitter. If you meet those two things, you're eligible to win, and we'll pick somebody during the next episode, and we'll announce it there. Huge. Yeah,
1: great stuff. Those that ends our announcements, but before we get to our main event, our interview, John, I have to tell you about our friends at Cornbread Hemp. All right, and I know what oh! you're. Th- I know what you're thinking. You're gonna want to fast forward through this, but why don't you just wait? Because I have a. <laughs> you
2: do. You are man. Have you ever just walked past the clearance aisle? No. Did you do that? No. no well, you I don't. mean, I,
1: I don't know.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Miranda Melcher, host of the Just Access Podcast. We bring you amazing interviews from the world of human rights and access to justice, from Dunja Miatovic, Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights, to Liz Evenson, International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. Whether you're a law student or legal professional, human rights activist, or just want to stay up to date on what's happening with the world, the Just Access podcast is your go-to for inspirational stories and fascinating discussions about the state of human rights today. Search for Just Access on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No, you don't walk past it. You stop and you fucking look around. You do. And that's you what this ad around. is all about. Uh,
1: yeah that that's absolutely what it's about. Anyway, I have a short story. So everybody knows who listens to this show that I suck at soccer. That's pretty much an ongoing theme of this show. But what's ironic and really annoying about that is that even though I never made varsity in high school, I have a lifelong injury from it. I tore cartilage, never got it fixed. My knee hurts like a bitch all the time when I run or do any strenuous activity. Our good friends at Cornbread Hemp gave us some CBD gummies and some CBD bomb the other day. I tried that bomb on my knee. It worked, and I honestly, like, I was like, I wasn't sure if it would, but I was very excited to find out that it
2: worked, and, uh, I love it, so, big fan. I really like, I look, I, whenever, uh, whenever I'm like, man, I just need something extra today, I pop one of them, and I'm like, whoa, you know, oh, I'm talking about the gummies. The, the gummies, because, like, the other day, I had a headache, and, uh, I, I honestly, I don't like taking medicine. I just don't, I don't like putting it in my body. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, let me see Anti-vaxxer. what that is. Anti-vaxxer. Yep. Let me see. I just don't like to be dependent on it, I should say. Um And so I was like, let me see, you know, I'll just try this. I took, you know, took a couple of the CBD gummies. About an hour later, I was like, whoa, I don't have a headache anymore. So I don't know. I You know, I'm going to say it was because okay. of that. But I, you know. Science and shit. You you do your own research. But anyway, this is a big deal, Chuck, because I already talked about it. You don't walk past a clearance aisle. You just don't. You have to stop. You have to look. Because you know, maybe that maybe it's ten percent off, Chuck. Maybe it's twenty percent off. But what if I told you that our clearance aisle is twenty five percent off? That's that's a lot of
1: money that you save buying eighteen husky pants if you were at Kmart.
2: True. You'd save a ton of money because those things take a lot of fabric and they're expensive. You know what mm-hmm. else? If you're right now, if you're like, man, Chuck and John, they're talking about this CBD shit. I haven't tried it. Well, here's the time. It's now. Yeah. You, it's
1: never better you than you the go present. To,
2: you go to cornbreadhemp.com. You put all that shit in your cart. I want you to look at the total. Say, you know, I, I don't want to spend that much, right? Then I want no. you to go. Who would? Then I want you to go to the promo code section. I want you to type in lach mm-hmm. A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A. You know how to spell it. And I want you to just watch this magical thing happen where the, the cost in your cart goes down by 25%. I mean, just like that. Like that. Beautiful. Incredible.
1: Do you know the deal already? Flower only, full spectrum, USDA certified. We love it. The good people at Cornbread Hemp. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Check them out. So we got a great interview today. I had the great pleasure of talking to Crystal Wilkinson, who not only is the poet laureate of Kentucky, but she's a, a Black feminist writer from Eastern Kentucky, Appalachian Eastern Kentucky, and a proponent of the Afro poet movement. We've talked about it on this show before. Her work was. Pri- excuse me, her work has primarily been in involving the stories of black women and communities in the Appalachian rural Southern canon. I love this interview. So she's got a new book out called Perfect Black, and it's a combination both of poetry and prose that combines a deep love of her rural roots with a passion for language and storytelling. And some of the subjects excuse me, God, I can't even talk, some of the subjects that she talks about in this book, racism, political awakening, imbued with a vivid imagery of growing up in Southern Appalachia. I loved my conversation with her because, so I read Perfect Black before I talked to her, and I'll tell you what, like, I I, I said this in the interview, I like poetry because I have ADHD, and it's easier for me to really absorb it and understand it better than, like, a long, thick book. And so I loved her poetry because it's so vivid and the imagery is so powerful that it puts you, like, almost in her perspective and her point of view when she's telling a story through it. And it's really cool, and I love it so much. Um, it was such a great conversation. I'm really excited for you all to listen to it. And really quick plug— our friends at the local bookstore Wordplay West Virginia actually have this book in stock online. You can order through bookshop.org and I will put the link in the show notes. One, I really want you to order this book. Two, I really would love for you. We would lo- excuse me, let me just rephrase that. One, we would love for you to order this book and support Crystal and and just really have a great book on your bookshelf. But two, we would love for you to support wordplay West Virginia. They're a great local bookstore in West Virginia. You can go to bookshop.org. You can buy perfect black and paperback. They currently have it in stock. And I think they're restocking their, their, uh, hardback hardcover versions, support a local bookstore, support crystal Wilkinson. This is a, a great book and a great interview. Um, John, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'm disappointed I missed this one. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, you know, spoiler alert, we uh we have jobs outside of this, and uh that day I could not leave. so uh it's just one of those unfortunate things of balancing a job in the podcast uh but i I do regret missing this. I hope we can have crystal on again uh where I can be in on the interview. Uh, because she is extremely impressive, and in somebody that if you're not familiar with, you need to get familiar with right now.
1: Totally agree. I love this conversation. I think that you all will too. So here is our interview with Crystal Wilkinson. What
2: if some days I'll have enough?
1: And what if one day I'll see it all? Will well, still be out here in a job? really excited to talk to you about, about your new book. I, I finished reading it and I was I I could probably spend like several hours talking to you about it, but I'll try to <laughs> to be to be good with my time here. One one thing we like to ask people first though is a little bit about where you grew up. Because you know, especially being from Appalachia, it's not a monolith and everybody kinda has their own story. And so I'm kind of curious about you, like where you grew up and how that maybe influences what you do now.
0: Well, you know, I grew up in a, I'm gonna call it a hamlet. Some people would call it a a holler. I don't ever, it's not a holler proper, but I grew up in a little place called Indian Creek, Kentucky, um, that is really sort of um, South Central Kentucky. So it's not, it's like more in the foothills. It's actually part of the Knobs region. um, If we're looking at geography, it's part of the Knobs region. Um, And my grandfather was a tobacco farmer uh so we grew up on a little um tobacco farm there and uh i was grandparent race and i think that uh my grandmother was a, a domestic worker in town and so um our family was a kind of farming family that did a little bit of everything so we had a, a few we had a cattle my grandfather did um milk for a while Uh, and delivered milk to a dairy in Stanford, Kentucky. Um, So, 64 acres of land, uh, a big garden, a big corn crop, um, lots of creeks to play in, (laughs) lots of uh, land to sort of roam on that wasn't developed in any kind of way. So, My love of of nature and the landscape started early. And I think during the period of time that I grew up in, or perhaps because of the period of time, because I was grandparent raised, my grandparents gave me uh, lots of freedom to sort of roam that area. You know, I think it was probably safe, uh, even during the time that I grew up uh probably a lot safer then than it is might be now but um i'm not sure that if children get to live like that anymore maybe they still do but uh, a total freedom no worry about kidnapping or being you know whatever so it was it was great and i think it also stoked my imagination because i didn't have any siblings so it gave me an opportunity to sort of roam in the woods and sort of imagine um, formulate characters and formulate scenes and um, my husband would say as scared as i am of snakes he can't believe that i ever lived like that (laughs) but i did
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's funny yeah i bet um well and and it's clear that like a lot of that early influence comes out in your writing i'm kind of curious uh what compelled you to write poetry and when did you start?
0: I've always written poetry. You know, uh, poetry was probably my first love along with um, storytelling. I just... It's not that I ever thought I was... Not that I never thought I was good at it. I just never thought I was as good as I thought I should be when I compared myself to other poets that I loved. So I just developed that storytelling muscle uh, a little bit more, but poetry's always been an outlet. I've always written poetry every so often, you know, over the years, I've had um, a single poem published in a journal, you know, I was part of the Afro-Latin poets, and all of them were writing poetry. So I would write poetry, along with them. When we were meet when we would meet, I just always sort of tucked it away somewhere. It wasn't, uh, anything that I sort of pulled out and celebrated all the time. Uh, but I think there's always been a sensibility of uh, of the poetic in my work, too.
1: Yeah. And I, what well, I have to admit, I, I'm I'm biased towards poetry, I think probably selfishly because I, I struggle with ADHD. And so poetry is something that's actually really great for me because it allows me to consume something like that's smaller or that's maybe broken out narratively, but that I can really like take in and, and, and process. And so in poetry, I, I really love like its ability to both tell a story, but also paint like powerful imagery. And I notice that that's something that you do incredibly well um, in, in a lot of your poetry, but it, in particular, in Perfect Black, and I'm kind of curious uh, about this new book specifically. What compelled you to write it? Like, what was the impetus behind it?
0: Um, well, I think I had to write the book that came before, The Birds of Opulence, to sort of get to this. Some some of these, you know, Perfect Black is a combination of of being compiled and written. So some of these poems are the same poems that I just talked about that were sort of in a folder, in a computer folder, or Hidden in a box somewhere that I'd written long ago, uh, and some of them were brand new. But because in *The Birds of Opulence* was the first time that I allowed my my poetic self and my prose self to sort of live in the same house um, and 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 come through the same body. So I had already sort of practiced that in that book, and. Um, Had these poems available, had written some new poems or written some lyric essays or some lyrics that um, I began to look at. And uh, what was exciting was, you know, when I laid them all out, sort of like, you know, I actually physically laid them out in the room like lily pads, um, there was a, the narrative threads were there. Some of the name, you know, the same things that haunt me. That compel me to write particular things in fiction were there in my poetry, uh, sort of without me even realizing it. Like when I thought about a collection of poetry, uh, I always thought I had to start with poem A and go through poem Z with, with writing a collection in mind. Um, and I don't think I don't think I even realized that those same themes that are part of my haunts were there in the poetry until I sort of laid them out and I said, Oh. There's that one, there's this. this still this thread of um, sort of studying and holding up to the light. Um, My mother's mental illness, which I think is a reflection of how mental illness is dealt with in small communities and how mental illness is dealt with in Appalachia. You know, there's these issues of race, same thing, how it was dealt with in my family and where I'm from and by extension, you know, how it's dealt with in the, in America. And so all these themes were there. Um, so I think then I realized that, oh, there is a collection. I do have a collection on my hands, you know, th- those same themes are there. And I think they're saying something narratively. Um, so that was exciting for me to see that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's, um, it, it's really interesting how you kind of came up with that concept and put all the pieces together. And I'm wondering if like, Um, not to get like too deep in the details, but I'm wondering if you could tell us what, what the name perfect black means, like, what were you trying to get across with just the name of it?
0: Um, there were several, we went through several, um, Rebecca Gail Howe, um, was one of my early editors on this. And, um, we went through several options, almost every poem in the book was considered uh, as a title at some point. Um, I think we were very careful because it was uh, compiled, and so we would kind of go, you know, oh, tobacco, no, that's not it. Uh, The Water Witch, no, that's not it. Um, And so when we came upon, and it's not even the title of a poem, but when we came upon the poem and I started thinking about the themes, I was thinking about both being being Black, um, being fat, uh, and being uh, country or being Appalachian, and, um, and all how that's been a theme, you know, is the theme uh, of my life and how uh, at various points in my life, it's always been, you know, well, you're from the foothills, so you're not Appalachian enough. You know, you speak with that twang so you're not black enough you're not the same black as me you're not your body's not perfect because it's not small and so um when i came up on that um i think it serves almost every theme in the book and, and touches it in some way and so that's how we came upon the title Yeah,
1: I love that, too. I love that just like that radical ownership of like, this is who I am. And, you know, like deal with it kind of thing. Because that is an experience that I think uh, we've noticed a lot of people have, especially like you're not Appalachian enough, or you're not this enough, or you don't say it right. And, you know, we've even played into that mistakenly at times as well. Um, Yeah. You mentioned themes like when I was reading this I I noticed obviously there's a lot of themes like smaller themes Um, but one of the one a lot of them I noticed were like it really stuck out to me obviously the church is mentioned a lot you reference family a bunch and also a lot of trauma and racism of course in the black identity and on the show and in Appalachia you know we try to push back against the negative stereotypes and perceptions but we also try to find line of not being an apologist right and acknowledging the problems that do exist and so one of the stories you told really stuck out to me which was um i think it was titled dig if you will the picture and in it you touch on the experience of not just racism but sexism sexual harassment and even rape and i was hoping you could talk about like that story or just those themes in general and what compelled you to write about
0: um well you know that um that piece in particular, um, came out of an experience when I was trying to, um, you know, I am like the number one Prince fan. Let me say that. Like number one, I should have <laughs> been like president of his fan club since the time I was 16 years old, years old. I wasn't, but I should have been. And so, um, when Prince died and, you know, I'm sort of telling this story backwards, but this is how it happened. When Prince died, um, I got gifts like people all my friends people who are not even my friends know uh how deep my connection uh is was to him and so um the oxford american had asked me to write about prince for its music issue and so my plan was to write a little something sort of making fun of myself like being you know 50 and really still being a, a fangirl like so much that I you know collapsed and cried when he when he died. And so um I started trying to to write this essay in a really humorous way. And what happened was I tapped into memories that made me realize exactly why I was the super fan that I was so young. Um, and all of those themes began to to come up, and all of those things began because you know, my um, sexual trauma in church had begun, um, you know, a little bit earlier than that when I was, you know, twelve or thirteen. Um, that sort of um, teasing and sort of sexual predation uh, on the school bus had begun, when I when I went to school. And so thinking back on my younger self, all of those things be, began to come out, you know, sort of around thinking about uh, Prince's music and, and how I listened to his music at the time. Um, so that's kind of how um, it, it started. And it startled me, right? Um, it, it scared me because I thought, well, you know, if I'm writing fiction, I could certainly put some of these things in, but they would be hidden um, so this is a, a lyric essay, which, you know, the lyric essay is a, uh, a sister to to poetry. Uh, and I thought, oh, wow, you know, I'm revealing a lot. Um, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this, but it was the truth. And I thought that it might help um, other people, which it did. It's probably um, the piece that I've gotten most sort of private response, like people will respond to it when they see it on social media, but I've gotten lots and lots of emails from um, young teenagers and women and uh, husbands and partners uh, about about their own experiences uh, in the church, their own experiences um, with with rape and. Um, predation of of some kind. So um, yeah, that's how it came about. And I think that um, some people say I've been called brave for writing it, but I don't think I'm I'm brave. I think that that's sort of the writer's job is to try to come up with a way um, to talk uh, about something so that it's not just trauma porn, but it's it's um, a way, a segue from my own personal experience and extend it out to someone else so that they can see themselves reflected in it. Um, and I think that's what's happened with it. And uh, um, at least I hope that has. And, and, and you know, I have proof because people have, have um, written me about it, but I think it's important. Um, part of, you know, you're talking about Appalachian um, stereotypes, but I think that part of our sense our sensibility to sort of protect ourselves uh to isolate ourselves um there's so much of that that i love and i still hold uh dear that sense of being unique and um, surviving and uh, holding on to your heritage and your ways uh, but some of that is also harmful, and we have to admit that. Like we don't talk about um, the mistreatment of children, and sometimes in our churches, uh, and it doesn't have to always go as far as as being um, sexual. We don't talk about mental illness. Um, we don't talk about rape, and so I wanted to to, to talk about those things in this book. Um, in hopes that by telling my story that I could help someone else.
1: Yeah, you bring up a lot of great points in that. And I think one of the one of the things that sucked out to me with that story was just like the authenticity of it and how it wasn't like it was an unvarnished telling of it. And I think that's something that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And your point about not talking about the, you know, the elephant in a room of mental illness is something that I know a lot of people, including myself, experienced growing up, and I think it's still something that is so taboo to even talk about in some corners of Appalachia. But I'm uh, I'm glad that more people like yourself are are talking about it because that's how you destigmatize something like that. Um. So one thing, you know, I mean, obviously this is a huge theme of your book, and so this is something that I find really interesting because as someone who is a native Appalachian who is a a white guy from what was, I believe, at the time, the second most ethnically homogenous part of the country in Parkersburg, West Virginia. I could count on one hand how many non-white people went to my high school. My my experience growing up was very limited in scope as far as being exposed to different people and different cultures. And so, when you talk, you talk a lot about your identity as a black person, and particularly as a black woman. I find it the most interesting because I obviously didn't have that experience at all growing up, and and the way that you write your poetry and your prose, it almost puts you – it puts the reader kind of in your perspective, in your point of view, so you can understand, I think, to some extent what you're experiencing. And I was hoping that you could maybe talk a little bit about that because I just personally found that so – fascinating so interesting and so helpful to understand your experience
0: mm-hmm. well i'm glad you said that because i mean i think that um what i've done and, and you know I've, I've said this a lot like i teach poetry and i teach fiction um and not every poet writes so close to the bone you know sometimes there'll be a speaker of the poem that's not really the poet um but for me I do have a tendency to, to write really close to the bone. Um, and I think that part of what I'm doing is just trying to find a way, um, again, to express all these pieces of my life and hope that there's a sort of a ripple effect that no matter who you are, um, you're either, uh, seeing a reflection of yourself or you're learning something about someone else. And, um, It's been interesting because, you know, we we live our lives and we think that we're sort of the only ones. And so my experience was the exact opposite of yours when you said that you you lived in uh, sort of an ethnically uh, uh, one-eyed place. Um, I I did too. You know, my family was the only Black family I knew uh, from the time I was born all the way up to to college, basically, every Black person I knew I was related to. There were three of us um, in school uh, when we were growing up. And so from kindergarten, a hit start, all the way through high school, it was just the three of us uh, in school together, all three girls. Um, so, you know, I didn't know it then, but I now know that there are lots of people who grew up grow up that way, you know, be they uh, Black, I think the majority of the minority in Appalachia is probably Black, but there are a lot of other ethnicities too, uh, you know, be they Asian or um, Indigenous, um, or uh, I think there are more and more um, Spanish-speaking people who are moving into those areas too, and I think that that's a, a unique, you um, experience and it's been interesting since the book's out how many people that i've talked to who's um are excited about that part because that's the way that they grew up and they've never had a chance to talk about that they just say you know yeah that's the way i grew up i grew up with all you know my town was all white and they've never had they've never read about that experience before or had a chance to to talk about it so um, I'm glad uh that the book is making its rounds and and people can relate to that
1: yeah that's a it's an interesting point that you've talked to other people with that similar experience because I think the sort of the the perception of Appalachia is a very white region and and you know in many respects it is, but I think that that when you hear the stories from people that aren't white. From it is so powerful and so important and I think that's also a natural bridge to one of my next questions which is I I want to know more about you being an afro Latin poet and what that means because I think um, I embarrassingly I'd never heard of the term until someone one of our listeners had uh, mentioned Frank X Walker and I bought his book and read it and was like blown away by it. it was fantastic um, so I want to I want to know a little bit about what that means. Like, what, what's that group? What does that mean to you and, and and to the region?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it means uh, exactly what you're talking about. Sort of, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, sort of decolonizing the region. You know, when Frank came up with the term uh, Afrofatica, he had looked in, you know I don't, maybe if you look in an older dictionary, you can still find it. You know, I, uh, did my research and found an older dictionary where I saw it too, but, you know, he went to a reading, um, that was billed as, you know, the best Appalachian writers. And, uh, I think Nikki Finney was the only, uh, black writer there. And he went and it was sort of his own sort of, um, you know, he was being an autodidact because I think he was a, a student at the time, or just 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 a little bit beyond being a student. Maybe he had just graduated from UK, um, and he looked the word Appalachian up, and it and it specifically said white people indigenous to the Appalachian region. Um, and I don't really know if the poem came first or the name of the group um, because he had already started meeting with a small group of writers uh, in the King cultural center at, uh, university of Kentucky. And, um, it just sort of stuck. I mean, he has the poem Afrolachan and the group was called Afrolachan poets. Um, even though everybody wasn't a poet. Um, and I came up on them as, uh, I was still working in, uh, public relations for city government here in Lexington. And I had, uh, had been writing sort of in isolation. And uh, even though Frank and I, our first cousins are married to each other and we grew up about 30 minutes, 45 minutes away, towns apart. um, We never met until, until then. Yeah. And so um, getting in with that, that group was um, filled with affirmation for me. It was a place that I felt like I I fit in because I had began to to write more and um, to sort of bring my writing out of the closet. I did a lot of professional writing as a a PR person for the city, but I'd always written stories on the side and written poems on the side. And um, that was the first Time where I could sit in a room and I didn't feel like uh, a part of myself wasn't identified. So, you know, I had spent a lot of time going to, I'd started to go, um, you know, work with Gurney or work with other people, and I'd go to some of the Appalachian uh, writers' events across um, the region. And I could relate. I could relate to the food, I could relate to the culture, I could relate to the way that people spoke, but everybody in the room was white, but me. Uh, I had also um, been digging around for Black conferences to go to. And I remember one of the first ones I went to, um, I traveled and uh, went to it. I had, it's, it's a long story, but I had borrowed a car to drive. I had uh, gotten donations to, to be able to go. I was so proud of myself for getting in and I went. And everybody was black, but there was nobody who was like me. And so, as Mm -hmm. soon as I said something, everybody wanted to know, "Oh, where are you from?" And then, you know, started this ball would start rolling of like, "Oh, there's black people in Kentucky. Yeah, there's black people in Appalachia." And so, um, coming into the fold with the Appalachian poets was the first time that I could just sort of talk about the work without having to ask or answer these questions about identity, either out loud, out loud verbally or you know, sort of in my head, me thinking, mm, I don't know if I really fit here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the first time I didn't feel like an outsider.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that's such a great point, And it's one that people like me take for granted probably every single day where like the only way I can really relate to that is when I've been in a group of people that were not from West Virginia or hadn't met somebody from West Virginia or Appalachia. That's like the only thing where I kind of felt like I I was out of my element and, and had to explain my identity to somebody, but I don't have that experience. And it's something where I think it's really helpful to hear because, you know, it, it, it for someone like me, it's not something I've ever felt and to, to, not have that but then to have that with that group must must be really special and really powerful to you i imagine
0: yeah i mean it was especially early on and of course it still is but uh yeah i mean i think people don't don't realize like i go to um of course i haven't during the pandemic and i I haven't for a number of years because i've been uh, busier uh, these last few years than than earlier but i always go to the uh, appalachian writers conference in Hyman, and i've gone you know, off and on for years uh, or other things like that in the region. And um, there's always a moment, you know, I usually know everybody. It feels like old home week and people say, well, you know, you don't, you shouldn't, nobody's talking about race. It's, you know, it's not a, a, a thing, but you can't help but to notice just like what you talked about um, when people bring up certain things, you can't help but to look around and notice that you are the only one in the room because there are certain things that you people can't uh, you can't have have conversations about or you overhear things and you think well do I need to say something about that somebody just made uh, a horrible disparaging remark about Appalachians do I need to say something or am I going to choose my battles and it's yeah. sort of the same thing about race like uh, do I need to correct this person or just go back to my room and and do what I came here to do. So, um, yeah, you know, when um, a lot of things were going on um, with the, sort of the, the good trouble that people were getting into uh, uh, around um, some of the ills the of the country um, a few uh, months ago, well, and of course it's still still ongoing, but when the protests were happening and um, things were going on, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought before I was going with that. But, um, oh, and so somebody asked me to come and do a Black Lives Matter protest in the middle of the pandemic in my hometown. And um, there were some high school students who were putting together um, a protest um or at least a stand-in and I was so proud of them that this was happening in my hometown my all-white hometown and so they asked me to come since I was a writer and I said "Mm, uh, you know I don't know there's a pandemic going on and um they let me in some of the the private groups Facebook groups social media groups that they that they had around it and um I went in and it was just really amazing that uh one it was amazing that these young people were like we need to do something we want to make sure we do something and it was also amazing that there was another thread of people just going berserk and people saying and and then some people that I went to school school with saying things like we never had any problems here this that's not that's just people from the city just going off and acting crazy we never had any problems here at all uh And even I was mentioned at times and somebody said, well, you know, the writer Crystal Wilkinson, she lived here. She never had any problems. Oh my goodness. Her, her family was the nicest family. She never had any problems. And, um, I think that that's just how, how people see their lives and, and how, you know, I don't even know what to say about it, but it was a a big eye opener, uh, for me, and a big decision of whether I was going to be involved. But I think, you know, as an artist, I think that writing this book was the best thing that I could do for those young people that are there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm glad that you told that story because that is really interesting to hear, and it's good that young people especially where you're from are are activating engaged on that and I think that it's important to have those voices in order to show the people that you just mentioned of like oh it never happens here that yeah it actually does and that you you don't get to tell Crystal Wilkinson's story you know like that's and oh people sometimes they they're just disappointing but it's good to see that, that that's happening though at the same time um i i know that uh, i'm running up on time here but i did want to mention this because it's a big deal and i don't want it to go unnoticed is that you um were recently appointed to be the kentucky poet laureate and the first black woman i think ever to have that role and i was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that and what that means
0: um well, it's huge, right? It's huge in Kentucky. So that sort of recognition and um, that I was talking about earlier, of being sort of recognized uh, and feeling, you know, um, included uh, and not excluded, um, is certainly a part of that. It's been a, a, a huge deal for me, particularly because I have sort of witnessed. Uh, this whole string of poet laureates of, of the state uh, going all the way back to, to Mr. Steele. So uh, at least since the 80s, the 90s of witnessing and knowing, being in these, uh, being a young person and now uh, being in my 50s, but being a young person then sort of sitting at the feet of all of these poets laureates, uh, Georgiella Lyon, Sina um, Naslin, um, you know, like I said, James Tills, too many uh, writers to even name, but to have known them uh, and to known them as as to know them as people of letters in this state, and to be included in this legacy um, has been huge for me. When they when they called me to ask me would I accept, I had no idea. Uh, I of course uh, burst into tears because it is sort of a coming of of age. It's sort of being brought into the fold uh as a Kentuckian uh as a Kentucky writer and being recognized for that so I think it's huge um I think it's huge for girls uh Mm -hmm. to see a woman in this position um I think it's important that I am even though I have a book of poetry I'm primarily a a fiction writer who's been recognized in this way as as a, a poet of poet laureate. Um, so it is a position of, uh, of letters. And I think it's important for Brown and Black girls to see. Um, you know, I didn't have an opportunity like this as a girl to see myself reflected in any way in the writing, uh, in the people who were around me, um, in any sort of position of power. Um, so I hope it's empowering for for young Black and Brown girls to see me in this position yeah, as absolutely. the first Black woman. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Well, congratulations—a huge, huge honor, and and really impressive. And I think just is a compliment to the your body of work. Um, my last question for you is: Where can people learn more about you, and where can they find your books, including Perfect Black, but all of the books that you've published? Published.
0: Um. Probably, I mean, you can find the books uh, anywhere that books are sold, you know, online or in your, go to your local bookstore, though, uh, mm-hmm. to Definitely. get it if you, if you have one. Um, but also on my website, uh, crystalewilkinson.net, um, there are links there um, to, to purchase all the books. And there's also uh, some links there about me to get a little bit more information.
1: Well, perfect. Well, I will put all that in the show notes for everybody. And um, Crystal Wilkinson, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed our conversation. I, I love your writing and I'm looking forward to getting some more of your books to read as well. So thank you and thanks for coming on our show.
0: All right. Thank you. What if some days I've enough And what if one
1: day I'll see it off well, i still be out here all right well that was our interview with crystal wilkinson let's roll into it the last segment of the show the beef portion as always they call him the elizabeth holmes of beef because all it takes is one prick to set him off into a world of beef Ladies and gentlemen, and gender non-binary folks worldwide, we are pleased to present to you the beef-eating mouth of the South, coming to you live from a foreclosed Ponderosa back-to-back buffet world champion beef with the Brincha! peek behind the mirror here breaking the fourth wall every week i try to set i I try to get a reaction out of john with these intros with the beef it never (laughs) happens and i'm just gonna keep trying
2: you know it'll happen
1: that was clever by the way one prick that was fucking clever
2: i gotta be honest with who's elizabeth holmes
1: elizabeth oh my god all right Elizabeth Holmes was the was the founder of Theranos, the sham company that claimed that you could use one pinprick of blood in order to analyze a blood.
2: Oh, I remember that story. We didn't we talk about that? I have no idea. Only anyway, yeah, this is a while ago.
1: It is, but it's back in the news now because her trial is starting.
2: Okay. Yes, I do know who she is. I just didn't know her name. Okay. Now I I know who. Well, there it is. you go. So pretty good. I'll give you that. If I would have, that's on me. You know, I probably would have reacted if I had, if I had. Well, and
1: prick that. is a double meaning because it can refer to a prick of blood or oh, someone being right? a prick. In fact, I was very tempted to say that we are at pod latch of the Elizabeth Holmes of podcast because one prick made us famous. J.D. Vance.
2: I, I got I it. But I mean, it would probably be three bricks because. The father, the son and the Holy Spirit. It uh you me and jd (laughs) damn that's a sitcom i was gonna say that's our first book (laughs) you me and jd
1: (laughs) john damn it vance anyway sorry go ahead with your beef i will get off my pedestal all
2: right uh this week's beef uh is gonna be short and sweet uh chuck you and i we had a conversation off of uh off air right about what's going on in Texas, sure thing. And we, and you and I, kind of came to the agreement that our opinion as two straight white males isn't—it's not worth people not listening. A, not to. exactly it in high f- demand, correct? But this this week's beef is not focused on that. It's just me wanting to remind the people listening, you know, all of Appalachia, especially, and you know, the rest of the country. This isn't the one and only thing that they're coming after. Mm-hmm. This is the start. Once they once this starts to roll out in other states, because it will, and I promise you it's coming to Appalachia. It is, unfortunately. Once that continues to roll out, it'll be getting even worse. It'll be like COVID spreading the first time. It'll just rapid fire all over. You'll start to see them coming. I mean, they'll come after abortion because they already are. They'll come after gay marriage. They'll they'll definitely come after weed. They're going to come after all of these things that they they know they can piss their base off with to gain votes. Because, spoiler alert, I promise you, they don't give a shit about these things. What they give a shit about is winning elections. That's why they do these things. So, like, all of the moral arguments that... That our side makes or their side makes doesn't mean anything because you know their mind is made up they're coming after this because they want to win an election it's not for the the greater good it's not for helping the local people you know it's nothing it's for them to keep in office so that they can remain in power that's it it's that simple but you as a voter and as a person have the ability to essentially try to make change and try to either one get these people out of office or two do everything you can to help secure the rules and the laws and and the rights that you think are important it's not going to be easy it's not going to be fun uh, but i can promise you that this is not the last time that this is going to happen and it's not the only subject that it's going to happen too so you need to prepare now because i don't want to you know none of us down the road a year from now None of us should be shocked about what they come after next.
1: No. They're, and they'll come after everything they possibly can as long as it'll win their votes.
2: That's it. That's the game. They'll weaponize Christianity polit- like they've politics, done with this. Politics is a game. And, you know, right now, that's that's how they're playing yep. it. Well, It's that simple. That's true. So, anyway, I just wanted to use this week's beef... Not, not really to focus on a person, but really to focus on telling people that to essentially get ready. like the, it's, this is not the, uh, this is not the end. It will continue. You need to prepare in terms of, of really working with trying to help people raise money who you may agree with, uh, getting out there making phone calls, knocking doors and beating some of these people who are going to try to make your life, Much worse, because it secures them another vote.
1: Vote people out that don't reflect your values. That's always a solid game plan.
2: Yeah, but don't wait until 2022 and 2024 to do this. Because if you wait for the election year, you've lost. It's over. Because these people, it's 2021 right now. Right now, what's going on in Texas is the conservative stump speech that they're going to run on until it's dead oh, in the yeah. water. This is a
1: multi-decade campaign that's able that, to that start at the local level, for sure. And, yep. Uh, I hate to see it, but um, that is very good. That's very good advice. Anyway, let's wrap it up. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week. Follow us on all the social medians. Check us out on YouTube, all the other things. Put it in the show notes. Check it out. And we'll be back next week. We love you. We appreciate you, and have a wonderful Wonderful day.